Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. All right, so we're back, and we are starting with a new series on the book of Ephesians, which is um, great during the Holy 50, because uh, one, we've done a lot of Old Testament in our last couple of studies, and two, um, the Ephesian, the book of the, the letter, or the epistle to the Ephesians, is one that talks about salvation for the world. So it's nice to meditate on this, um, you know, after the resurrection. And so... I'm going to start off with some opening questions that we are going to end up discussing um, here in this first chapter. And the um, first question is going to be, what's the difference between foreknowledge and predestination? And we can even like start it. You can either say, like, what's the defin definition of predestination? And then let's also define what is foreknowledge. When you say foreknowledge is knowing something will happen and predestination is like you're compelled, it's more of like force, like you don't, you can't reverse it at all. Okay. So there's, you know. Because when people say they're predestined, it's like you can't escape your destiny. Foreknowledge just, is just knowledge of what will happen. Okay. All right. Anybody else? It's a really good start. I agree with this. Uh, uh, this uh, for knowledge, I think the only one that has it is the Lord. Well, is it true? Only, only the Lord has foreknowledge. Like, so for example, like as a, as a parent, you can look at your child and be like, well. I know my child, I know exactly what they're going to do in this situation, right? And so that's, to a degree, that's foreknowledge, right? Yes, yes. Based on how you know the individual, you can predict. Like, you know, a lot of, like, spouses, like, wives will send their husbands to the grocery store with a list and know that it doesn't matter how detailed the list is, they're going to come back with something totally different or additional items, right? So there's, you know, foreknowledge is kind of like a function of intimate knowledge of the person. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Also, could I could add a little term. This is sort of a diversion but technically we we associate predestination with calvinism so it tends to be a more of, of a theological term and perhaps a more negative term because of that right and we are going to end up talking about uh john calvin we're going to actually uh talk about some of his beliefs today and next week we'll talk about his buddy martin luther all right so we got both kind of back to back um all right so here's kind of the next question now that we've talked about foreknowledge and predestination. If God is all-knowing 
and can see ahead, knowing what will happen before it happens, does this mean that we are predestined to a certain end? Right? If God is all-knowing and knows what will happen and how everything will play out, is that the same as being predestined? Well, I would argue that just because he knows doesn't mean that we don't have, we, we still make the choice. Okay. So we, we would still be guilty. What do you mean guilty? Regardless of, he may, he may know what we will do, but we ultimately choose to do it. He didn't choose for us to do it technically. Just, he just, just because you know something doesn't mean you made the decision for that to happen. Okay. Okay. Imad, go ahead. Uh, sometimes feel free to just like unmute and jump in uh, because I don't I don't see all the the screens. Everybody's screen. I wanna so the way I see it, and may I may not be right, but it's like a chess game, right? Okay. Seriously, all uh, think of again the god of chess is that the computer who knows all possible alternatives from the beginning. <laughs> you know everything. But okay. we are not distant. We have the choice to move. But they have the knowledge. With our move, probably we'll, we'll do good or we'll do bad. Okay. So what I'm hearing from you, similar to what Matthew is saying, is that like we still, although kind of all the options and all the outcomes are known, we are like within the understanding of foreknowledge, we still preserve the right to choose. God still... <laughs> like preserves that and protects that. Yes. Okay. Kind of last last question is what would our relationship be like with God if we were predestined? I mean, isn't the simple answer that we would be Calvinists, I guess? So however they act. <laughs> I mean, you're right. That That's an element. I, I don't know that, like, everything would, would be Calvinist. Calvinists hold that, that you know, belief of predestination, right? But what would that mean? We don't have to put an effort in anything. Uh, you're, you're right. <laughs> Okay, so we don't have to put an effort in doing anything if we have uh, our final destination known for us. So okay. we don't have to run or to uh, develop our relation with God or work for it. And none of our choices would matter. Okay, mm -hmm. so none of our choices would matter and, and we wouldn't have to put an effort, right? What else? Also, also, God would not be a fair God. Okay, God would not if, be a fair if, God. Why? He would not be a fair God if he predestined, if he created like trillion people, and he predestined everybody to be good or bad. And so it means that the people who would not go to heaven had no choice. And uh, then why... Why should he even have an end of life or an end of day judgment? Okay. I see that. I 
And, and I agree, but I will add, like I'll kind of push back a little bit and say, but he is God, the creator of all. And if he creates this and he creates that, like who is to say like that's right or wrong? Well, the way I see it, I interpret this is if he decides to create me as a saint or decides to create me uh, with very little spiritual ability or spiritual feelings, I still have, it's like I look at it as talent. He's God. He can create me with 10 talents and create me with one talent, but I still... I still should have the freedom to utilize what he gave me in a good way if he's going to judge. Okay. If I don't have any freedom, there is no sense of judgment. Okay. I think it's a fair, fair response. Fair response. All right. I would also add, could we truly know or, lo or love God if we're predestined? Because technically every relationship relies on the uncertainty that the other person has to make a choice to truly love you or cooperate with you or so on and so on. Yeah. So if you don't have that choice, can you truly be in a relationship with that person? And that's, and that's, I think one of the key arguments against the um, kind of the belief of predestination is because you take the element of choice out of it. And once you take choice out of it, you rob the relationship of love because love is a choice that we make for it to be for it to be love it has to be like a free choice that somebody's making right and once you take that element out of it it no longer becomes love right and the way i always like think about it is like as much like like I love the Bears, the Chicago Bears, even though they stink, like and have stunk for for decades now. Like, but I love them. And it's free choice I make to subject myself to like the disappointment. Now, if I were to force Elijah, my son, to be a Bears fan, like I rob him of the love of the team, right? Because I'm forcing him to do it. It's a silly example, but like, you know he's no longer free it's i'm making him and and the relationship changes right and once so in, in that same vein like once we take choice out of it then it ceases to be a relationship right and and the church fathers wrote a lot you know protecting this this choice that we have to respond all right great discussion we got a lot to cover all right so let's kind of uh get some, you know, background on on the Ephesians, all right, or the this epistle to the Ephesians. And so Ephesus, which is a city, right, was a major, major uh, cosmopolitan city, right? It was, a, it was a busy port. And so whenever you're at a port, the influx of people going in and out of the city is huge. And whenever you have that, um, you know, a lot of that foot tra traffic coming through the city, it naturally introduces various idols, right, and, and different belief systems into the city. And, and so that's what the, the city of Ephesus was. Now, while we're focusing on the city of Ephesus, it's good to 
say that Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, like had other surrounding towns. And when Paul came and ministered in Ephesus, he was also ministering to the different cities in um, in um, in Asia Minor. So this epistle to the Ephesians is yes an epistle to the church in Ephesus, but it's also, it was meant to be circulated. And actually in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of the, the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesus actually wasn't in there. Um, it just says, you know, um, and we'll read the first verse, but it says, says to, to the faithful, right? So when he's saying like to the faithful and he's sending it to a certain place, it means circulated around, right? So other key things, just to give us some historical context and maybe connect some some um, events from the book of Acts um, to Ephesus, to give us a better understanding of Paul's relationship with Ephesus, is that um, Apollo or Apollos was one of the people that uh, Paul met where he, he said, you know, have you been baptized because Apollos was preaching? But Paul realized, like, OK, there's some missing parts to your preaching. And so he said, "What have you been baptized? He's like, yeah, we got baptized under the baptism of John. He's like, well, what about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And he said, we didn't even hear that there was a Holy Spirit, right? So this was an interaction between Paul and Apollos. And Apollos likely was in, in and around Ephesus doing some preaching because what Acts tells us is that Paul went to Ephesus and started to, to find the people that Apollos was preaching to. And then he connected the dots for them completed the picture of Christianity and salvation for them. And that is probably how, you know, Christianity began to get established, more established in Ephesus, right? Paul had a tough time in Ephesus. There's a lot of opposition and he spent a lot of time there. Um, and over time, he began to find some success and, in one of the stories that tell us that over time, Paul kind of gained, um, if you will, acknowledgement from, from the people in Ephesus is we get this one story where these itinerant Jews tried to go and cast out a demon. And they said, well, in the name of Paul's God, we cast you out. And the demon replied and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you guys? Right. And, and he pummeled them and they all ran out. Of the house, right? That gives us a sense that Paul had been in Ephesus for a while preaching. His name was known. Clearly, like people were acknowledging what he was doing. And then these, you know, bogus itinerant Jews tried to copy what he was doing and it backfired. Um, and the other thing is that Paul, like his preaching and his ministering to the church continued to grow because at a certain point, we have this story of this great tumult which happened in Ephesus because some of the business owners who were making money off of selling idols for the uh, Princess Diana or, or, or the great Diana, um, who was one of the, the idols in Ephesus, started to say like, well, my business is going down and it's because Paul is preaching and taking people away from you know the great Diana. So you know, they, they had this big uproar in the city and they're chanting for hours and so on. So all this tells us that Paul, over time and through a lot of struggle and opposition, eventually like started to get established in Ephesus. So clearly whenever somebody is, you know, spending that much time, like this is, you know, a church that is near and dear to his heart. Um, 
what we know from the book is that Paul wrote this in prison. And so whenever we're talking about, you know, his prison epistles, um, we're talking about the very end of his life. So likely in that kind of 61 to 63 AD uh, time frame. Um, he wrote it while he's in prison, penned for, for the church in Ephesus. And then what do you think his target audience was? Who do you think it is? Is a, a metropolitan city, so everyone is coming in, so mm -hmm. he can reach to anyone basically. So, what what would that group of people? I agree, like he's he's preaching to a lot, but kind of who's who's his main target? There's a whole bunch Gentiles. of idols, Gentiles, right? Yeah. Right. So that's everything. So back in those days, you were Jew or you were everything else, right? So he. He is focused on Gentiles, but remember Paul's system, whenever he goes to preach, he goes to a city, he goes to the synagogue, he starts to preach, kind of stirs people up, trying to convert the Jews. They kick him out. Then he goes and, and talks to the Gentiles, right? This was Paul's system of, of, of preaching. So his primary is primarily talking to the Gentiles, but of course he is also going to be talking to Jews, right? But he's we're going to see a lot of that mostly targeted towards Gentiles, right? And his theme is going to be salvation for all, right? That's his theme. If he's talking to the Gentiles and the and the Jews who are like are also in the picture, right? The big issue with the Jews is that like, well, you can't have salvation unless you you know get circumcised and follow all the the, the laws of Moses and so on. So there's always this issue of like who gets salvation, who deserves salvation. That tension between Jews and Gentiles, we find it in, in so many of the books of the New Testament and we see it here. Right? So Paul's theme is salvation for all. All right. So any questions on that? Let's jump in. Let's read the first two verses. I'll get us started. All right. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our fathers and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Paul frequently opens up calling himself an apostle because his apostleship is always a point of discussion and tension. Why? Well, first of all, he had a interesting past, which I imagine a lot of people are still suspicious. You know, he was a pigeon or trying to basically find on the inside or something of that sort. But also, I imagine he also wasn't like one of the 12 and he didn't really, he didn't exactly directly encounter Jesus either. So, okay. so did I imagine there would be questions of authority there. One of the 12 and not one of the 70 and not one of the witnesses of the resurrection right so the key thing for any apostle was you had to be a witness of the resurrection so yes to your other points but the key point the central point is he didn't witness but he said apostle of jesus christ by the will of god pretty much saying he's, he's summarizing his whole story of the road to damascus by saying it was god's will who shined the light showed me all these visions revealed himself to him and that's why i'm, I'm before you today as an apostle and he earned his apostleship through his works, right? Because nobody like labored as much as Paul, nobody sacrificed as much as Paul to spread the gospel, 
right? So he earned his apostleship through this vision and through the work that he showed, all right? And when we look at kind of verse two, it says the faithful in Christ Jesus captures the believers in Asia Minor. But the last point I want to say, when he says God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He puts them like, it's like a sandwich, almost like a word sandwich, right? You, you wouldn't read it and not think that these two belong together. And the whole point of doing that is he is defending the divinity of Jesus Christ, right? Which is going to be key for salvation. So he's linking Jesus Christ to God the Father. And back in those days, like God's name was hallowed as it is today, but to join anything else to it was 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 significant. So Paul saying God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, coupling the two, said that Jesus was divine, right? Um, so that's it. Now let's kind of move on. And these next five verses, they're going to consume most of our time. And it's these five verses where, as we were saying in our discussion, John Calvin, uh, starter of the Calvinist church, like supports his belief of predestination through these verses. Okay. And predestination is one of these basic tenets of the Calvinists where it's the belief that God has predetermined who will go to heaven and who will not, right? It's who will be saved and who will not be saved. Some will be saved and others won't, right? And there's no changing it, right? It was predetermined. And it was mentioned in Goldman's also, that predestined. There, there is some, right? Yeah. And and there are others, but this is one of the keys, right? So as we read these verses, we're going to go through each verse. And we're going to really challenge ourselves to say, what is Paul saying? And not like what, like reading into or reading what I want to get out of Paul, right? So Calvin was reading into these verses. So we need to kind of come back and say, well, what is Paul saying? That's our question, right? That we're going to really wrestle with, with these four, um, these three verses, right? So I'm going to read them. And I want you guys to hold this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. All right. So now we're going to go like verse by verse. All right. So I'm going to reread three. And we're going to say, what is verse three saying? What is Paul saying? Blessed be God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right? What is being said? Just take verse three by itself. I think he's saying that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you're fine. Nobody else was saying anything. Okay. 
Yeah, I think he's saying that he's praising God because he has provided us with with all the means of salvation so we can inherit the kingdom of heaven through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. So this so I, I agree with you. All right. Let's let's kind of tease out just some small points. All right. Every spiritual blessing. What do you think that is? The Holy Spirit? Yes. Which we are going to get to a little bit later. Sorry? The gifts of the Spirit. Okay, so the, the gifts of the Spirit. Okay. You know, through the Holy Spirit, yes. Like, when we talk about... I'm going to take something that I put later on, okay, but usually here. Um, when we say... The Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit give us? To be holy. Okay. To be holy, but what are the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives? Yes, he is a huge part of our ability to work towards holiness. What are the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Love, peace. <laughs> I know I'm going back to vacation Bible school. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. <laughs> right? So that's like, it's the only way I can remember it VBS from a couple years ago. Right? So those are what we taste right here when we work with the Spirit. What is the fruition of them? When, when do we experience the fullness of them? In heaven right so we taste of the spiritual blessings that come from the heavenly places right so he's giving us like a, a, like some of these blessings in the heavenly places and like you're saying Tom, is that our access to them comes through christ right who was the son of god the father right that's what he's saying this verse also serves as uh, like serves to support our understanding of what our sacramental union is with God. Because when we partake of the sacraments, what are we doing? We're partaking of the heavenly blessings and the spiritual gifts through the sacraments. We're partaking of something divine through something physical. What did Christ do? He brought something divine to the physical world by assuming humanity. Right? So whenever we're talking about Christ in these verses, we're, we're like St. Paul's already from verse 2 where he said, God the Father and Jesus Christ, to verse 3 we're saying God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, like he's joining these two, right? Divinity and humanity, right? He's, he's kind of like made his case for it, right? Let's go to verse 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Who is us? Who 
who believe in Jesus and the Son of God. Why do you, has he said that it's only for those who believe? Is, is us the humankind? Yeah, us is human, right? Us is, is humanity. Paul has not like, you know, articulated or given us any sense, at the, you know, throughout this letter, at least up until this point, that he's separating us, that us is like chosen, though it's very easy to read that, right? One of, you know, like, many times I read that as like, us is like, okay, me who believes, right? Anybody who believes, which is where kind of some of the, you know, the support for the Calvinist belief in predestination, right? Us being the chosen ones, right? But us is humanity. And what was the goal for humanity? To live forever in heaven with God. True. But let's look at the verse, like to support that, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Do we have like any supporting like evidence or stories of this, that this was his goal for humanity? Well, when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Before the fall, he created them to be in a love relationship with them. And it was a love relationship because Adam and Eve had the choice to obey, right? So preserve the love, the, the freedom to choose. And he created them holy and without blame, without sin, right? And that was the intention because the of the tree also that was there that if they partake of it, it's a tree of life and they would be forever in that state, right? So that was the goal. That was the design. And Adam and Eve were all of humanity. There weren't like any divisions in humanity or races or anything like that. They were the mother and father of, of humanity, right? And the goal was to be whole without blame before him in love, right? And that's what he created. So verse five, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, right? So predestined, this is the big word. The predestined is to decide beforehand, right? When we look at one of the translations or the definitions, it's to decide beforehand, to, to determine ahead of time, to decide upon something before it actually comes to me, all right? So when he's saying, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, all right? It's a mouthful. But when he has determined ahead of time, all right, to adopt us as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. When Jesus Christ came, and he assumed humanity, what did he, like by assuming humanity, what did he do? He adopted all of us, right? He adopted all of us. This was the plan from the beginning. When like God in his foreknowledge, when he created Adam and Eve, knew that they were going to mess up. So he knew that he was going to have to come and save them, right? It's not that he like told Adam and Eve, okay, you're created here, but look, I know you're going to mess up, but don't worry, I'm going to correct it like, you know, 
hundreds of, you know, thousands of years later. Like he didn't lay out the plan for them, but he knew the plan. That was his foreknowledge. And his plan was, I'm going to save everyone. Why? Because when I created you from the beginning, the goal was this unity. And you had to go and mess it up, but I'm going to fix it. Right? So he knew what he was going to do beforehand. And he was going to adopt us through his son, Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his goodwill, which was showed to us in the Garden of Eden and was followed through by everything that the Lord did through the birth of his, you know, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, right? This is the adoption. And it was known beforehand that he was going to do that, right? That's the predestination that we're talking about in these verses, right? And lastly, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the building, right? And, and this one is, is just St. Paul just saying, he's just happy. Like, thank God we were saved because of the beloved of God, which was the Son. Right? Packed verses, right? And I can't tell you, like, the number of times I've probably read this and be like, oh, this is nice. But this is one of Paul's, like, run-on sentences where you're like, I'm not exactly sure what you're saying. But when you break it up, you're like, oh, okay, I see it, right? Any questions on this before we move on? All right, fantastic. Um, let's go to verses 7 through 12. Can somebody read 7 through 12? Thank you. In him we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Right, right. So St. Paul here is just kind of like gushing over God's goodwill, right? And he's just kind of emphasizing it. Like we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. He's, he's just saying like God is so gracious. He's so compassionate that he gave us you know, this forgiveness. And it wasn't like a partial forgiveness. And then the other half was de dependent on like how I responded. It was a full forgiveness, right? And, and he made this forgiveness, even though he knew ahead of time he was going to forgive fully, right? And he made this forgiveness possible through the sacrifice of his son. Right. And so he's just kind of like adding, like, he's just like putting it on thick of just like, guys, realize how loving and how compassionate, how merciful God is. That this was his desire to sacrifice his son so that we would have full pardon, full redemption from our sins. All right. And then when he's talking about the wisdom and the prudence of God. Right. And that is in verse nine. Right. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. 
right? The, of his will to, to save, to redeem, to adopt, right? According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, right? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, right? So it's essentially saying like, God has been working this plan and he has been orchestrating it. And when he finally had all these pieces in place, he had the Roman Empire, how he wanted, he had Pontius Pilate there, he had Herod, he had like, like you know, Tiberius Caesar, the disciples, like he orchestrated all this, the intertestamental period, all these different things. Like he, he moved all this in his wisdom, preparing for the coming of us, yeah. right? It's like the most the earrings men with me. What did I give you? Let me get back on track here. Um, it was the most significant time or monumental point in the history of all the world, right? That the coming of the Son of God, right? Which heaven came down to earth, and earth would be brought up to heaven, right? Which is why St. Paul is saying, like, that in the disp uh, da -da -da, you know, dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth. He brought everything together, right? Giving everything purpose, everything meaning, right? He was talking about this meaning, you know, in the Old Testament through the prophets and, and all his interactions and punishment of the Israelites and that, all these different things. But all of it was leading to Christ because what was the goodwill from the very beginning? To be holy and blameless in love with him. And he would stop at nothing to accomplish that goal. And so this, this incarnation, his death and his resurrection was the most monumental movement in all of history, right? Because it brought together heaven and earth, right? Divine and humanity. And he knew all this from the beginning. This was not like a, let's make it up on the go. This was, this was it. I have a question about verse 10. So yeah. what is the proper understanding of dispensation in this context? Because I know like a lot of Baptists use that for their own philosophies too it's just that in the dispensation of the fullness of time like god was like he he was like at work in in what was happening in the world in order to like prepare everything for the like to be in the right you know situation right he was preparing the roman empire and the jews and punch Pilate and all, all these different things right it was it was god's movement in order to bring everything to the fullness of time. And the fullness of time is when, you know, the incarnation happened. So he was moving everything, dispensing his wisdom and, 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 and working mysteriously in order to get everything ready for the coming of his son. And why this time? Well, that, that was the wisdom of God, right? We don't know exactly. Other than we can study and see like, okay, at this time, this and this and this was happening and these people were in power and, and these were the different social contexts. But like at the end of the day, 
it was God's wisdom to know that this was the right time for the coming Messiah. Right? So he was dispensing his wisdom, preparing the world for this moment, which he knew was going to come, you know, from all of eternity. And so it was a fullness of time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Fair enough. We can we can chat later. All right. All right. But I appreciate the honesty, Matthew. All right. Let's go verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom... Also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Right. So when you think of this letter, who do we say, like, what is it, the target audience? The Gentiles, right? So Paul is articulating to them that all this was done so that you and I and everybody was adopted, pretty much taking it out of, taking this idea of salvation, which was couched within the Jewish belief system and saying, now it's for all of you, right? But because it is free, right? Or it's a free choice, you have to, choose what to do with it, right? You either accept it or you deny it. And so while the Jews had a special place within the story of salvation, right? And, and we don't want to attack that or take away from it. They have a special place in the story of salvation and the salvation narrative. But the Jews, through the birth of Christ, now are, are part of this narrative, so to speak, right? And that was the goal all from the beginning. But he had to start with the Jews knowing that it was going to all of humanity. And so he says, in him, you also trusted, so you believe now, after you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So saying all this was done so that everybody has an opportunity to be saved. And in that process, like what was happening when somebody believed back in those days? They were baptized. And then what? What do we do now? We baptize and we confirm. There's mate, confirm, right? Back in those days, you would baptize, and then Peter and John, who were the lead apostles, would come and lay their hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. Right? So what he's saying here is that having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Right? Where do we like? Where does this whole idea of the sealing of the Holy Spirit come from? Well, Pentecost, and not just the Pentecost of the Jews, but what happened when Peter had the vision and went to Cornelius, who was a Gentile? What we have is the Pentecost of the Gentiles. The same thing happened, and Peter recognized it. He's like, oh, this is the same thing that happened to us in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Same thing happened here. Clearly, like, God is not differentiating you know, 
of who received salvation, right? So that, that Pentecost of the Gentiles was a huge part in the history of understanding salvation. So Paul is saying, you believed and were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. What on earth does that mean? Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Right. I, I interpret it as the Holy Spirit is the sign that, for lack of a better term, we're on the right path. Like the Holy Spirit is guiding us to heaven. And since it's a long journey and we're still alive, we need him down here with us. Not that I'm not like a location thing, but with us to guide us to the the end of the road. I agree. And, and that's a really good way of saying, it. I'll give you like maybe a silly example, but like when you have a coupon, right? You have something that says you're entitled to something, right? Have you fully kind of reaped that coupon until you have turned it in? No, you kind of, you have it. And it means like you can get something. Right. There's a promise to this coupon. But when I go to the store and I turn it in and I get what what the coupon says I will get. Right. That's the fullness of it. Right. Fullness of the coupon. So the Holy Spirit, again, like we we're saying, you know, what were all the, the um, you know fruits of the spirit? He's giving it to us. But when are we going to experience the fullness of it? When heaven comes. Right. When we when we really, you know, take up our salvation. So it's kind of a down payment now for heaven, right? We will, as you were saying, Matthew, which I really like the way you say it, like it's a way of saying like you're on the right path. And if you continue on this path, like when we get to heaven, we'll kind of get the full reward because the, the reward is all these fruits, right? But we won't experience the fullness of it because sin is still like messing things up. Sin is clouding our ability to really enjoy all the fruits of the Spirit. But in heaven, there's no sin. It's out of the picture. So now we get the fullness of it. Okay? This is a dumb example, but I sort of feel like it explains the same thing. But I almost wonder if it's almost like, not to sign a reference, it's almost like um, Transformers or Arnold Schwarzenegger's from the future. But he, he comes back to protect you to make sure you get to your um, your hiding place or whatever there was. I guess you can look at it like that. I mean, it's creative, but... <laughs> I feel like uh, yeah. so the eternal life is to get an uh, um, intimate relation with God. So the Holy Spirit bring, bring us close to God by hearing his voice and having his spirit uh, inside our body. Mm -hmm. So like we can feel him more and have Absolutely. a deeper relationship with him. You're right. Exactly. It, it opens up. And, and that's like a really good like build up to, to these next verses, right? Because now, okay, we have the Holy Spirit, but now, right, it's about building upon the work of the Spirit, right? And that we're going to, we're going to jump to 15 um, through the end of the chapter, okay? And it says, therefore, I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers, 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Right. So St. Paul here is beginning to describe this lifelong journey. If one would accept, okay, this the adoption that was given to them, we now begin this lifelong journey of beginning to understand and know the Trinity on, on a deeper and deeper level, right? And we know and, and it is a Trinitarian work because the God, you know, God the Father sent the Holy Spirit, and he also sent his only begotten son to take on humanity so that we may know God. But one of the things that we always say about God is he is knowable and he is unknowable, right? He's unknowable because he's infinite. We're finite. There's nobody can fully understand God, but yet he is knowable because he has given us his only begotten son who became man. And he is also sealed in us the Holy Spirit. So we have a way to know God fully. No, but can we know him in a real way? Absolutely. And the knowledge that, St. Paul is talking about here, right, is he's talking about like a true, a deep, an intimate knowledge, right? He's not talking about, so there's two words in Greek that that, that I know of, right? I'm sure there's many words in Greek, um, but when we talk about knowledge, there's gnosis, okay, which is learning about something, right? And you can learn about anything doesn't mean you really know something right give you an example like at our home we watch tons of like animal like shows right so we learn about animals right but we don't train animals so like there's only so much that we know about the animals that we watch on on, on the cartoon right but when you go to the zoo and you like see the trainers like talking to the animals and like this one likes to do this and this one likes belly rubs and this one really likes to eat, right? It's a different sort of knowledge, right? Give you another example. It's personal. Everybody knows here that thorns hurt. <laughs> you know, this is going, right? You know that thorns hurt. Like you probably grabbed a rose bush or done some garden and you got pricked and thorns hurt, right? I was given the blessing of knowing how bad thorns hurt when I ran into a thorn bush before I knew it was a thorn bush. And I went all the way into the bush and had one arm out of the bush. And that was the only thing. And it was the most uncomfortable situation I've ever been in. Right. And every movement hurt. Like I have felt thorns, but I've never felt thorns like that. Right? I could tell you it hurts, but until you go into the thorn bush, 
right? Thinking you're about to catch a frisbee, but you caught a whole bunch of thorns, like it is a bad, bad situation. So I would say I have epignosis or intimate knowledge <laughs> of the thorn bush, right? And that's when we look at, you know, the Holy Spirit that is sealed in, inside of us, God's presence sealed inside of us. When we nurture, when we make the decisions to sow to the Spirit, to sow, you know, towards virtue, what we gain is that intimate knowledge, right? And it's never ending. There's never a point in time in our life where we're like, ah, I have like gained it all. That, that it doesn't exist, right? As we dive deeper in the sea of love, we become more captivated by what he is offering us, right? And it propels us to go deeper and deeper. And that's what he's saying, like, where he says, uh, think in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his call. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Right. It just like it just continually draws us in because it's never ending how we can learn and grow and understand him. We see him in the smallest things in life and in the big things in life. Right. And and one of my like favorite examples of just somebody who like saw God in like in everything was was Pope Corollas. And one of my favorite stories that I heard of him that like totally shocked me. Uh, I heard it, but apparently somebody came to him and said, like, so-and-so, like, has this issue, like, I think it was in their mouth, but it had some sort of ailment. And, like, he was trying to get Pope Corollis to come or something, something to that effect. And Pope Corollis <laughs> took a piece of candy, <laughs> put it in his mouth, <laughs> took it out of his mouth, put it back in the wrapper and say, give this to him. <laughs> Tell him to eat it. <laughs> and the person ate it, right? And and they were healed of whatever ailment it was, right? And and just like what a ridiculous story! Like none of us were such germaphobes today. Like none of us would like like take that. But like, my brother saw God in the smallest things, and that a piece of candy can be a vector of healing, right? Everything was God's, right? But that comes out of such depth of understanding and knowledge and intimate knowledge of God. It's kind of a weird story, but I love the story. So that's chapter one of the Ephesians. Any questions or thoughts? Now let's close in prayer. And then we'll talk about next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Lord, for all your blessings. Thank you for this day, this opportunity to see, to dive into this letter to the Ephesians. We ask you, Lord, to give us true and intimate knowledge of you by, by choosing, man, making decisions that help us foster and nurture your Holy Spirit, which resides within us. Help us to swim deeply in your love in your salvation and in swimming deeply 
and soaking in the Lord. May we go boldly and preach to all people that salvation has been given to them. So we ask you, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and give us strength to go forward uh, in our mission to, to reach all the ends of the earth with this good news of salvation. In the intercessions of our saints here, as we say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and earth is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is kingdom, and pride and glory of the Lord. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.